You're listening to the Pop Tart Podcast. Girls down. You already know. I canceled culture long before it got back to me. I don't feel canceled. I canceled the need for popularity. I don't give a shit about you liking or not liking. Again, let me go back to the origins. What are you going to cancel? What is there to fucking cancel? I already did it all. How are you going to cancel me? Come on, bring it on. Cancel me? I laugh in the face of it. I canceled you. I canceled them. I don't fucking give a shit. I'm not here for a popularity contest. Hello. And welcome to Pop-Tarts. I'm Emily Rems. I'm the managing editor of Bust Magazine in New York City. My regular co-host, Callie, is on vacation today, but that means that I just get to be one-on-one and personal with today's very, very exciting guest. As always, I love to talk to you about pop culture, and today's guest is a high priestess of punk and an icon of New York's underground art scene. Lydia Lunch arrived in New York when she was just 16 in the mid 70s. And she she made a name for herself downtown with the band Teenage Jesus and the Jerks. That band became synonymous with the hugely influential no wave punk movement and launched Lydia's multifaceted career of over 40 years as an actor, performance poet, writer, public speaker, solo artist, and front woman for her subsequent bands, Eight-Eyed Spy, 1313, Shotgun Wedding, Big Sexy Noise, and Retrovirus. Now, her life and career are being celebrated in a new documentary by director Beth B. called Lydia Lunch, The War Is Never Over, currently making the rounds at festivals and at art house cinemas nationwide. There's also a companion book of the same name, as well as her amazing podcast, The Lydian Spin, where you can hear her every week. I cannot wait to talk to her all about it. Welcome, Lydia Lunch. Yay! So happy to be here. I would love to start at the beginning, if I can. You ran away from, by what all accounts, was a horrific home life in Rochester, New York, when you were only 16. And then you arrived in New York City around 1975, 76. Where did you go? How did you survive? And how did you find your way into the underground scene? All right, let me start at the beginning. First of all, I first ran away in 1973 when I was 13 out my bedroom window on the Greyhound bus. And New York was even more of a wasteland than one could imagine. And so I realized I better go back and get some money, went back to upstate. And and by the way, my family life was not that horrible. And the reason I could speak about that is one of the first spoken word things I did was because I realized the bigger picture that other people had not only bigger problems, but that mine was not the only home in which there was mania happening. So one of my first spoken word pieces was called Daddy Darius, and I'll get to that in a minute. So I went and got some money and I went back to New York and I guess 76, 77, the dates are, are vague, but I knew I had to go to New York and I was hoping to be, because it didn't really exist at that time, a spoken word artist, but that wasn't really happening. So I formed a band. Uh, so I landed in New York with 200 bucks. Don't even ask. That was a lot of money in those days. Went to a bar I had heard about, picked up the first man I saw, moved into the loft immediately. Kitty Bruce, Lenny Bruce's daughter was moving out. I'm in. Went to see my first concert. It was suicide. I'm definitely in. And that was just a series of bizarrely synchronistic adventures. I mean, I knew I had to go to New York. I knew I had to do what I was going to do. Uh, But again, at that period, it was, you know, post-beat generation poetry, post-Petty Smith poetry, pre-slam poetry. And so I started a band that was half instrumental, figure that one out. And then eventually, um, you know, just had one band after another because I'm a musical schizophrenic. But then I guess I I moved to L.A. for a few years, moved to London for a few years to work with Roland S. Howard and form Shotgun Wedding. Roland S. Howard to work with my favorite band at the time, The Birthday Party. And when I came back to New York in around 82, 84, I just started curating spoken word shows and brought a lot of people to the spoken word stage for the first time, including people that never again wanted to do it because uh, for some reason, 
I think it's the easiest and most important thing to do, but others are a bit shy, even if they're exhibitionist rockers, just saying. <laughs> and it kept going from there. Something I've always been so curious about is you were this amazing self-made phenomenon. Speaking with you for only a few minutes, it's obvious that you're very erudite. How did you come by your education? <laughs> First of all, I dropped out of school in the 10th grade because they, my, my hippie English teacher wanted me to read John Steinbeck after I had already read Marquis de Sade, the best growth press translation, Hubert Selby, Henry Miller, Genet, Foucault, E.M. Siron, forget about it. I'm not reading fricking John Steinbeck. I'm gonna write. And she turned to me and said, you're really not right for this, are you? I'm like, no. And I walked out the door and that was it. So as an avid reader, and of course we're talking, you know, we're talking the, We'll say like between 72 and by the time I went to New York in 76, 77, I mean, I was reading a lot of books. I don't even know how I came upon them. Glam, you know, music really influenced me, although it doesn't, it's not really reflected in my music, but, you know, the New York Dolls, hot boys dressing as hot girls. And it just, it's like, I just had to do it. I felt also within, because I, I felt more inspired by literature at that point, even though yeah, I knew a lot about music. I mean, I love Berlin by Lou Reed was one of my favorite albums, early Bowie, New York Dolls, Stooges, et cetera. But I felt that there was a gap in literature that for some reason I just felt in my youthful arrogance, and I don't think arrogance is a wrong, is a bad word if you use it correctly and not against others, um, that there was a hole in literature that I had to fill, not only from because of my perspective, but because I, I felt that a lot of women that were a sexual, a political, or an intellectual minority didn't really have like the Jack Kerouacs, the Henry Millers, the, the William Burroughs. So I felt it was my duty to, to take these experiences, which I was not alone in having, and try to articulate them in the spoken and the written word. Amazing. And how no. do I get those balls? Honey, if you can see me now, I'm man-spreading. I do not know how. Just had them. <laughs> had them. You know, every, every generation feels like they invented youthful rebellion. But watching the new documentary about your life by filmmaker Beth B, Lydia Lunch, The War is Never Over, I was struck by this feeling that you really led the way for just an entirely new, scathingly honest version of rebellion, especially for young women who were just be were just done being treated like garbage. And once that genie was out of the bottle, it could not be stuffed back in. What is your perspective looking back through the lens of this film on how your work impacted the ways in which outsider artists and particularly women have expressed themselves following your emergence? Well, well, thank you for saying that. But really, I mean, I don't sit here thinking I've had such a big cultural uh, importance because I, I think I've had more of an importance to people on an individual level. That's that's specifically what I want to do is illustrate for the individual as opposed to a whole gang, although I'm not against get female gangs. Trust me, we need an army at this point. Maybe two. I've said it all along. Annie, get your gun. There's a rumor going on that the war has just begun. I've said this for 40 years. Um, I don't know. I mean, the thing is, you can't patent an attitude. If I've inspired anybody, I'm very happy to have done so. But I don't sit here thinking, oh, well, ha, 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 ha. Yes, obviously, they must have heard my music. A lot of my music was not heard at the time. A lot of my spoken word was not heard at the time. And anybody who came by it, for whatever reason, male, female, teenage, 60, 70, 80 years old, whatever. I'm very happy that they came by it and whatever it means to them on whatever level, I'm very happy that I could impregnate, hoping to impact them in a way to relieve some of their burden. I mean, I do feel like the mouth for those that want to scream but don't know how. So, I mean, I have a very, you know... I feel like an icon. I feel that you know, people more often than not have painted their own fear on my face. If they paint my face on a T-shirt, oh, well, isn't that cute? Uh, it's not why I sit here today. I sit here today to talk to someone like you. 
to talk to other people on it, which is why I still think spoken word is so important because I like a small crowd. I like to speak. I like to look into everybody's eyes. I like to speak individually. And it's why I'm very happy also, especially during the pandemic, to have had the podcast because, um, look, in the U.S., it's bizarre that I've had more spoken word shows in Europe throughout my career than I have had in America. And this is in places that don't even necessarily understand the language, but they understand the concept. I mean, and I also feel that in America, even though I'm speaking English, often people are not understanding the concept or the point because maybe I'm speaking with forked tongue here, okay? (laughs) It's not a dogma or a philosophy. So I don't know what the original question was, but that is definitely the answer. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) You know, there was a funny moment in the documentary where you said, Women used to be warriors. Look at how we've devolved from Medusa to Madonna, from Kali to Courtney Love, from Durga to Umar Thurman. I don't get it. We need to go back to the goddess. And, you know, this is a very old speech. Uh I mean, and the thing is, you know, I have this one record that came out almost 30 years ago, Conspiracy of Women, Kyle for short. There's a clip of it in the documentary. I think I have to revitalize and revamp this because, you know, I see these, the characters you just named, With all of their money, and I think this is what I call the Madonna theory, show us everything, tell us nothing. You know, I don't see with all that money and with all that power, how basically still it's just a fashion show. Now, it might not have been that way for 13-year-old, 14-year-old girls of a certain age. But for me, it's like, where is the frickin' point here? And, And again, what's very... What I can't even really get a handle on now is, is first of all, all right, we, we have come a long way, oh baby, I guess. <laughs> but we have the new Puritanism and then we have the pop pornification. So we go between Snowflake screaming about somebody catcalling them and Cardi B twerking on national TV. This is really a, an immense divide. And I don't know exactly where I fit in the middle of this because I am somebody that was talking about an aggressive female sexuality from the very beginning and making no bones about it and talking about that how some women do have this endless need that is not being fulfilled because basically they have to fulfill it with themselves. So all the amount of dick, junk or garbage is stick inside is not going to help until you can fill the void within. This is the point in my book, Paradoxia, Predator's Diary, still in print. But right now it's a very, very bizarre time where, as I said before, it's like snowflakes over here, Cardi B over there. And I don't even know how to describe this 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 thing. I don't know. I really don't know. What's your opinion? Well, you know, I I was thinking about when I was getting ready to talk with you about how when I was in my early 20s in D.C., I had a birthday party and this really cool punk rock chick who I really admired, who was about 10 years older than I was. She came to my party and she gave me your 1980 album Queen of Siam for my birthday. And it felt like a right of passage and sort of a profound vote of confidence. Like she was signaling me into a certain tribe. And I'm sure that you must hear stories like that all the time about how sharing your work has been a kind of shorthand way for radical women to find each other in this way for over 40 years. And so when you say, what do I think about it? I think that that is still going on and that you're not the only signifier of that kind of radicalism, but that, you know, like there are certain women and you are among them who are shorthand for women to pass on to the next generation and to be like, this is what it's about. Well, it's interesting to me when you mentioned Queen of Siam, because it was a very bizarre record in the sense that this, I had Teenage Jesus, Beirut Slump and Eight Eyes by none sounding at all like each other. But then I wanted to do this cartoon based big band record. But the thing is, only a quarter of it's big band and the rest are nursery rhymes where I'm playing the guitar on some of them. It's really simple. But people, depending on when they heard it, they have a very different view of what it is. Like I'm saying that about myself when I had to go back and listen to it when I wanted to do a few of the songs in Retrovirus. And I'm like, this is all nursery rhymes. (laughs) 
And then there's a few big band things. And by the way, the, con- the, the man that wrote the big band music and Robert Klein, my favorite guitar player who was in Richard Hell and the Voidoids and Lou Reed mer- played miraculously on a few tracks. Um, you know, it, it's, it's a bizarre record because in the time when it came out, there was certainly nothing like it, but that's what most of my music was nothing like it. I'm going to follow it with this. You know, when people say, oh, I like your music. And I don't mean to be a dick when I say this, but I'm like, well, which music? Because <laughs> I am a musical schizophrenic. It's interesting to me when people came to my music and what they came to. And I don't expect anybody. First of all, I've written 384 songs. I don't even I can't even remember a quarter of them, to tell you the truth. But I tell you, I got the list. Right. I'm a musical schizophrenic, but it's interesting. It's not enough when people say, oh, I like your music. Which music would that be? Would that be the most obtuse? Would that be the most avant-garde? Would that be some of the instrumental stuff? Is that the most catchy? And I do have some catchy. I have Big Sexy Noise is catchy. Cypress Grove is catchy. So I always find it fascinating to ask people to kind of justify what they mean by that. If somebody says, I love your spoken word, I don't have to question because uh, but then I also go, well, it's not really a compliment when there's not much competition. I'm just I'm sorry to say that, especially at this point. Where is the competition? Right. I'm glad, <laughs> I'm glad that you bring up spoken word because you've made your mark on so many different mediums that all really complement each other. You're a rock star. You've acted in over 20 films. You're a performance poet. Mm-hmm. You're the author of 10 books. And you're a public speaker with your own interview-based podcast. Talk to me about how you developed all these varying modes of expression and how you choose which medium to use when you have a message that you want to get across. First of all, I do not, nor have I ever thought of myself as a quote-unquote rock star. I'm just not. (laughs) I use music as the bullets to offset the words, first of all. And as somebody that is a, a functional creative schizophrenic, it's like really, it's... I'm a I'm a professional juggler. If that if I had to have a title, there'd be two titles: confrontational and a juggler. But it depends on what the mood is. I still think spoken word is the most important thing, even if it's backed up by music. You know, and and I continue to do things that aren't released in this country, are very limited releases that aren't even on my band camp, that are, are word based, sometimes with music. But it's just, you know, the only thing I haven't tackled, I'm also a photographer, and the only thing I haven't really tackled is uh, painting, except for apartments, which I do all the time. It's just not my, I haven't gotten there yet, maybe eventually. Uh, It's just whatever suits the time. And what's great about having the Lydian Spin podcast is I can get in both political concepts that are bugging me at the time. And at one point, I guess, whenever I did do a commercial, it is on YouTube about dump Trump, which I'm very proud of. Okay. And I could get in a lot of what's going on. I mean, the thing about my podcast is with Tim Dahl, who's also in retrovirus and various other bands, we have like a intro to every uh, person we interview, which is about what's going on, you know, this week or that. But we've had so many amazing guests and some, you know, we had Shirley Manson recently. We've had Adele Berté. We've had, I can't even, the list is now at two years. But one woman I would like to recommend to other people, and it's interesting because I love when people recommend who we should have on the podcast. Most of the people I've known, not all, but Penny Slinger is an artist and she's on the podcast and pennyslinger.com, her website. She's an artist who's in her 70s, who's still creative, who in the late 60s in London was kind of an it girl, but she was doing very surrealistic black and white photographs, films. She didn't want women to be the muse of men anymore. Installations became kind of popular and then said, forget it, I'm getting out of here because it's bullshit. Went to some islands, did art there, came back out, is still doing art. And then two years ago, unexpectedly, Christian Dior decided to use some of her surrealistic black and white photos, very, very surreal, as part of their backdrop. And what I love about interviewing people like this is, first of all, I like working with multi-generational women, which is what a lot of my spoken word has been. Bibby Hansen, who was the first Warhol superstar, I did a lot of shows with her. And Penny Slinger, there's an amazing documentary. And I just think it's important to also show women, older women, as I used to be the baby, and now I'm not, although I'm still quite infantile at times. I can be quite a teenage troublemaker. 
But it's important for me to show multi-generation of women artists. So I'm recommending Penny Slinger. I'm recommending my podcast because in two years, we've Lydia, can you hear me? You're frozen on my end. Can you hear me? Lydia? Well, I um, just, I needed to wait a minute before I could get back on so I could save what we had and made sure that I saved it. Let me so. just say it was a storm of witchy words and suddenly the internet couldn't take it anymore. It happens to me all the time. <laughs> oh, internet, get it together. Oh, please. Next time, soon it'll be holographic communication. I can't. <laughs> um, all right. Should I start? Should I start with the next question or did you want to wrap up? Why not? I think I was complete in whatever I said. <laughs> all right. Amazing. Thank you so much for jumping back on. Um, you have collaborated with and inspired so many incredible artists, many of whom appear in the film, including Danita Sparks of L7, who has been on this show, Thurston Moore from Sonic Youth and Kembra Fowler from The Voluptuous Horror of Karen Black, who was also on this show. I'm so interested to hear what your thoughts are on collaboration and making a creative community for yourself to thrive in. It was always important to me from the very beginning. Um, you know, and for, I, I look at the act of collaborative creation like this. First of all, I always have a concept first. I never think, oh, who do I want to work with? Because if you ask me right now, I couldn't come up with a single name, not as if I worked with everybody, but the concept always dictates who would be most appropriate for the job, who would be most appropriate to bring something to this holy matrimony. And what's interesting is, you know, I've other than one or two times in 43 years of collaborating, I've never had issues with people. I mean, it's also interesting. I worked with a lot of shy men and aggressive women. So, I mean, Thurston Moore was shy. Roland S. Howard was shy. You know, any number of shy men are fortunately attracted to me because they realize I'm not against them. But it's always the concept that comes first. And I always consider when I'm collaborating, I'm never a dictator. Like I might have the concept, but I want people to bring what they have to it. And I consider it a really free space where there's, I'm going to also give an example of this, where there, I don't criticize people. I encourage them. I mean, I taught a, a semester at the San Francisco Art Institute, and I love to do that as a high school dropout. Where And I know nothing about art school except for it's based on a lot of criticism. And in my class, you could not criticize, and me, the criticizer of all society, you could not criticize the other artist. You had to find one thing, even if it was the shape of their frickin' eyebrows that you liked about the presentation, to encourage it, because we don't need more condemnation. So it's the same way that I kind of approach collaborations. It's just to encourage people, or as Tim Dull always says, who I think is one of the freest people and freest musicians I know, I gave him freedom. No, no, no. He recognized somebody else that allows people to freely collaborate and create. And so it's just always been very important to me to do that in, in one way or another. It's just very important. And that's kind of what the Lydian spin and kind of collaborating in conversations with people. And that's great because it's interesting. Who knows who about what? As, as you know, everybody has a different audience base and it's great to just bring these, you know, different types, especially, you know, well, I, I don't care what sex or sex they aren't, just to bring stubborn, relentless, creative people who are not swayed by public opinion together in a format of intense conversation and have a few chuckles on the way. <laughs> I would love to talk about the role that sexuality plays in your work as someone who started out making very sexually candid and confrontational art as a teenager and who's still doing so at age 62. Have you experienced your relationship to sex and sexuality and power shifting over the course of your career? Well, let's hope we learn more as we go along. But if you're referring to, for instance, the films I did with Richard Kern in the 80s, I mean, I set out to, first of all, with both my book, Paradoxia, and the films I did with Richard Kern, I set out to 
try to describe a certain very specific female sexuality that I had not seen described anywhere else. So for instance, the right side of my brain, which I still think is a super eight black and white classic, was really an homage to Polanski's uh, repulsion. And it was kind of, uh, to me, it was about, you know, someone that could just not get satisfied with anything and kept pushing towards the most extreme in order to conquer a numbness, a flat lining. And then again, in the end, only the self will suffice. With Fingered, which is bizarre because I, look, I never set out to do, I don't think anything I do is shocking. I'm just giving you a dose of what my reality at certain points in my life has been. And with Fingered, I wanted to make a drive-in trailer, the kind I used to see at the drive-ins, but based on some of my real life experiences. And I can't tell you how controversial that short film was between being frat boy beer blast parties or the most misogynist film ever made or the most uh, liberated film ever made and eventually ending up at the Whitney Museum as the top of the cinema of transgression. Who the frick knows? I made a film that A, was a drive-in trail, exploitation drive-in trailer, which I and Kern loved. B, involved a lot of circumstances I've been involved in. But really the point was not, even though it's explicit, it's not meant to be pornography, because in my opinion, pornography has two goals, uh, profit and to get people off. The sex I portray in these films Although the right side of my brain is really a beautiful classic, Fingered is not about trying to get anybody horny. If that happens, good on you, kid. But it's really just about <laughs> showing a specific female sexual insanity whose need for extreme circumstances pushes you to the brink. And, and the point of it really in the end is victim becomes victimizer. Point made, that's it. Most people don't see that point, okay? That's what the point was. But it's interesting, both at the time and in retrospect, how many different opinions there were about that. You can't set out thinking, oh, I'm going to make something that everybody has a different idea about. It just happened that there were many opinions about it, depending on your age, maybe your sex, when you saw it. I mean, I've heard people laughing hysterically during it, myself included. I've also sat next to, for instance, male friends of mine who were cringing in horror, <laughs> which to me is a great, I, this is perfect. Some people laughing, others cringing in horror. I guess I'm successful. Just saying. Yeah, I can't plan that one, honey. You can't do it. But <laughs> theoretically. The question really was about sexuality. I mean, I think what's interesting in retrospect, for instance, if you just look at my album covers, I feel like I'm not being looked at. I'm looking at you, motherfucker. So in a sense, bring it on. And there has to be a aggressive, but not for the male gaze, powerful female sexuality expressed somewhere. And it's not about, you know, selling tickets or making money or selling records. It's about, fuck you, I'm right here. And what you're going to fucking do about it? Yo, something, <laughs> nothing, anything? Hello, I'm right here. If theoretically you and Richard Kern made a movie now, what would this like? What would that movie be like? Oh, 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 kind of a Patty Hearst type <laughs> situation, kind of a Better Meinhof type situation. I don't want to say anything about political assassinations. I'm not naming any names. I'm just saying it would be pornographically political. How about that? Would it involve a beret and an automatic weapon? <laughs> Honey, I'm very good with the 357. I think automatic weapons often cock up. Not a good thing. I'm also very good with a ball peen hammer. It doesn't take much. You know, I, I feel like there is such a clear line of connection and relevance between your work, particularly your 1984 performance poem, Daddy Dearest, which you referred to before. And the Me Too movement that we're experiencing now. But you've been outspoken in your work about not having that much sympathy, particularly for the accusers of Harvey Weinstein. In the film, during one of your performances, you say, you Hollywood starlets, get a fucking grip. You know what? You're ambitious, fucking greedy cunts. You couldn't crack the cock of a fat man in a bathrobe? Fuck off. 
Do you still let me have- and let me and look, this is a this is a tender point for some, because also with the war is never over. I thought it could have been an excuse my phrase, a blizzard of snowflakes. You know what I mean by that? It I could do. have been I'm being attacked, but I have been speaking about both politically and sexually real traumatic abuse and the worldwide situation against women is so immense. And it does bother me when it takes 20 years for 20 women to come out against one fat man in a bathrobe because their careers were on the fucking line. I'm sorry. It does. And also it pisses me off. And it's not about the victims. It's about why don't mothers teach their fucking daughters how to crack a dick at the age of six, how to headbutt a sack of fucking nuts. I don't care how big the man is. If he's one fat man and you you got 10 fingers two fists two fucking strong thighs you do not have to fucking take it and when you do it's because you are allowing the system to carry on which has been in place for a long time now if i'm sounding aggressive about it it's because i am i also have to make a divide between he called me he touched my back and i have one intro excuse me i don't know the episode where i'm talking about the original cuomo thing and i look there should be no fucking sexual harassment let's get this straight but you should be able to defend yourself. If somebody asks you a question, for instance, do you like old men? No, I don't. They smell like fucking cheese. Somebody puts their hand on your back. You don't like it. Why don't you say, why don't you lower it so I can shit in your fucking hand, asshole? Somebody touches you and you don't like it. Why don't you grab their fucking nuts and squeeze? See, I don't get it. I come from a generation that we had to defend ourselves verbally and sometimes physically on the streets every five steps in New York City. And the thing is, I decided to deal with it with humor, which worked. But you cannot take a simple hand on the back or a cat call as offensive as somebody who's been abused as a child and traumatized by fucking parents or somebody that's having their heads cut off or stoned to death or in Afghanistan. We're not going to go there. You know what I'm saying? So it's and I think that we have to be really we have to be aware of this. There should not be sexual harassment, but women need to learn how to defend themselves verbally, physically, and psychically. And this is what I've always said. So it does piss me off if people are complaining about petty shit. If I'm going to call the fucking newspaper, you know why I'm going to call them? Because I just fucking throat punch somebody. They're on their knees begging for their mommy because they touched my tit and I didn't like it. All right, that's just my method. I'm just saying. I would love- that sounds too fucking aggressive. Well, you know what? Women need to be back to the fucking warriors we once were. And I'm sorry that men don't know any better. Not all men are assholes, but most assholes are men. You got to get used to it. And, you know, I think that it's in this country, people are so spoiled and they want to, everything is not fucking precious. Get a grip on what reality is. And if this sounds harsh, it's because it is harsh because it is a harsh reality and you don't have to take it. So don't cry about taking it. Why don't you brag about fucking putting it down? Right. I would. I like- need to take a break. I, you know what? I need a break right after that because that's for you, honey. And I think you could defend. I look at. I know you can defend yourself. I I don't know if I could. I would like what to do think mean that you I don't can. know if you could. Well, you, you better have a few more fucking conversations with me, there, Emily. I think so. I think I do. Yeah. I would like to know as we. Well, record- again, I, I just want to finish with this. Sure. Sure. I am not against the victims. I'm against mothers for not teaching their daughters how to be more aggressive. And I'm against fathers for not teaching their sons to be more respectful. However, this is not. And the thing is, men have in general progressed greatly. There's still fucking assholes out there. So do you want to be a victim or do you want to fucking retaliate? And it could be with I like what Connie Chung, the first Asian American female newscaster, you know what she used to say? Don't think she was not sexually harassed. And this is on the most minute level. I would just tell them you're not attractive enough for me. Neff said. <laughs> That's they cool. grab your ass. Do you know how sensitive a fucking set of nuts are? Give it a flick sometime, honey. It's done. Just saying. Yeah. Do you have thoughts on the R. Kelly trial that's going on right now? This is oh, we're he's got to about- go down forever. I mean, yes. This is this is see now. This is the opposite extreme. And again, what is the problem here is 17 year old girls that don't know anybody. Girls by 12 should know better. Okay. And again, these are like kind of start, they they seduce them in by this star fucker bullshit. And then, and the thing is, there's a group of them. I don't know why they didn't cut his fucking nuts off. I don't get it. I don't get it. It's one man, 10 fingers, two fists. 
two elbows. He's got one throat, two eyes, a tongue that could be cut out with a pair of fucking scissors, a second nuts that could go, bah! yeah, bow, done, done. Women, we need more gangs of women. Ain't gonna happen then. I'm just saying, women need to be told that they don't need to take it. I don't want to hear them crying about anything. I want to hear them bragging about taking somebody down, kicking the fucking balls. Now, is that wrong? This is about pro-women. This is not against women. This is not against victims. It's saying, buck up, sisters. Buck the fuck up. And we can't take on the whole fucking world. But you know what? Humor or harassment turned around against itself are very effective tools. And also, every woman should have a screech alarm. Do not have mace on the streets because they might go back in your face. And if they know where you are, they might come back for you. Every woman needs a screech alarm or knows, needs to know how to scream in somebody's face. Now, in New York, you know, there's a lot of random attacks right now, which horrify and you cannot expect somebody to hatchet you or ha hammer you in the fucking head on the subway. But do not be on your fucking phone on the street. Do not be distracted. Do not wear headphones and have a screech alarm. Really? Let's start right there. OK. Just saying, I think we're fucking tough as fuck. We shit out watermelons. Men, you can flick their nuts. They go down on the fucking ground. Come on, sisters. Get with it. I don't know what more I can say right now. Now you got me all heated up, Emily. <laughs> I want to come over and teach you how to throat punch. <laughs> <laughs> I would take how about that the curly shuffle. Day. You know the curly shuffle, the three shoes, rope right in the eyes. <laughs> yeah. Um, what you're saying, I'm, I hear you. And I'm receiving it. I'm also half of me feels protective of you because I know how cancel culture operates in the world. Excuse and me. I canceled culture long before it got back to me. They don't even know who the fuck I am for the most part. I don't feel canceled. I canceled the need for popularity. I don't give a shit about you liking or not liking. Again, let me go back to the origins. I'm speaking for a sexual, a political and an intellectual minority. All right. That's it. What are you going to cancel? What is there to fucking cancel? I already did it all. How are you going to cancel me? Come on, bring it on. Cancel me? I laugh in the face of it. I canceled you, and I don't mean you. I mean, I canceled them. I don't fucking give a shit. I'm not here for a popularity contest. You know what I'm here for? To speak the truth about certain things that certain people are affected by, whether it's sexual, political, intellectual, or psychically. That's the bottom line. Now, let me just tell you about my latest project, because then we got to get off, because I got other things to do, even though I love talking to you, Emily. Okay. So now I'm, I'm doing a documentary called Artist, Depression, Anxiety, and Rage with Jasmine Hurst, who I've been working with for years, who has quite a bit of uh, documentary footage in The War Is Never Over. We've interviewed 35 artists, musicians, filmmakers, because I don't suffer depression or anxiety. My rage, I take it to the stage. You just got a free performance, okay? what I'm saying. But it's a situation and a subject that needs to be dealt with right now. And just trying to understand, and you know, there was uh, studies that say 73, I think it's underrated, 73% of musicians have depression or anxiety. Everybody in the news, even pop stars with tons of money are all crying about their depression and anxiety right now. And it's understandable how there's not only genetic, hereditary, familial and existential angst right now. So I'm making a documentary that tries to also and it goes back to the origins of what I started saying in the very beginning about Daddy Dearest. It wasn't only about my problem. So now with the war is never over coming out where I'm trying to explain how I never am doing shit just because it's my perspective, but knowing that there's other people that feel this way. And I'm actually doing a documentary about other people and having their voices heard so that other people that share this and mostly creative types. And I saw a chart where musicians at the very top, then there were poets, sports enthusiasts way down at the bottom about how much depression or anxiety or rage they have. So this is where I'm at now. And it's a very important situation and a very important subject. And that's what I'm working on now. And that's, in a sense, the cumulative of what I've been doing all along. Because when I first started, I didn't think it was all about me. So it's not about me, too. Maybe it's about you next. <laughs> and when I say that, I mean, I'm talking to people like you and yes. other people. 
And that's the point of what I do. And it's not for everyone. And I don't fucking care who it isn't for, but I really care about who it is for. That's what's important. So I'm talking to you. We never met before, as far as I know, but we're talking now. And I had an impact somehow in your life that matters to me because I'm doing what I do for people like you and people that need it. Not people that fucking want to cancel it. Go cancel yourself. You know what? Get out of your own fucking way and get out of my way while you're at it. I do not care. What I care about is the impact to the individuals, what I said in the beginning. And that's what I'm going to end with. You know, it's the individual that's important to me. And whatever they can take from my power, my ideas, my music, my spoken word, my whatever, I give it freely. And I don't want anything back. I'm not sitting here with my hand out for anything back. I don't want applause. That's why I love spoken word. No time for applause. I'm not here for applause. I'm here because for some bizarre reason, I feel like I have a calling and this is what I do. And you love it or you loathe it. And I don't fucking care, but I got to do it. And you don't have to see it or hear it if you don't want it. But if you do, hey, baby, it's all right there. Plenty of it out there. Thank you, YouTube. You know, the more money people have, the more they complain about YouTube and all that. Look, Spotify can suck my dick. I don't want my shit on there. But you know what? I'm glad a lot of stuff is on YouTube. I'm glad I have Bandcamp where you can listen to shit for free. That matters. Anything else? Because I don't think yes, so, babe. Just two just very brief questions that I like to ask all of my guests. I just promise it'll be brief. Just brief doesn't mean the answer will be, but go ahead. <laughs> Are you a feminist, Lydia Lunch? I am so beyond any category you could put on me that that doesn't even scratch the surface of what I am. You know, I try to be a freedom fighter for anybody who's not normal, anybody who feels outside, anybody who's weird, anyone who's sexually outside of every philosophically, intellectually. I mean, that just reduces me to one thing. No, I am beyond the beyond of any category. Fair. My last question is, what you're watching, and this is a broad pop cultural question, movies, television, music, Dragula. Dragula. I love it. Hello. Me too. Anything else? Dragula. That's what I'm watching. I'm a forensic freak, but there's no reason to name that, but Dragula is my latest kick. Love it. Being a monster, being a bit of a monster myself. I feel like I'm in drag every day in my freaking life, all right? I am. This, honey, is my drag. Well, I appreciate it. I love your drag and I love you. You are a treasure and I appreciate you being in the world so much. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you so much, Emily. And I'll be performing October 3rd at Berlin in New York with Adele Berté, Joseph Keckler and Luke Sant. So if anybody wants to come to see some hardcore spoken word and also retrovirus St. Vitus, September 22nd, I'm around. Amazing. Thank you so much for being on the show. I'm going to take a brief break and then I'll be back with my co-host. Thank you, Lydia Lunch. Before we get back to the show, I want to tell you about our new sponsor, Wolfie Vibes Publicity. If you're working on a new project and find yourself in need of a kick-ass publicist who communicates well and works tirelessly to get you the coverage you're after, consider going to Wolfie Vibes Publicity. Wolfie Vibes Publicity is a female-owned and operated boutique PR firm that will get you where you need to be, and you'll even have fun in the process. Get in touch via wolfievibespublicity.com for details and quotes, and tell them that Pop-Tart sent you. Essentially, I started it because every female comedian I know was amazing and hardworking and hilarious, and I knew would make great podcasts, and every male comedian I know already had a podcast and was doing their own thing. Hi, I'm Kate Moldenhauer, the founder of More Banana Podcasts, a comedy podcast network entirely produced, hosted, and led by women. We have shows about politics. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Let's Get Civical. When the Supreme Court puts stuff on their calendar, they use the word docket. So their Google calendar is a docket. Is a docket. So technically, I have a docket. You have a docket. We all have We all have a docket. Sex. Welcome to my vagina. I'm Jesse Karen. This is Rebecca Frank. What were ancient Greek dildos made of, Jesse? They were made of padded leather and, yep, anointed with olive oil. Yep. <laughs> scams. I'm Caitlin I'm Rodney Smith. <laughs> and, and we, we love, love scams. scams. She tells them she's a German Russian heiress and she seems like she has a lot of money and people buy it. 
That's yeah. basically what's happening. So as soon as she got a loan, she would cash it as much as she could out before anybody caught on. Amazing. So smart. I mean, so smart. I mean, it's terrible, but like to take that money out immediately. Because women are actually pretty versatile and funny. More Banana is a network of women's voices, unfiltered and uninterrupted. Find us everywhere you get your podcasts and learn about our growing roster of shows at morebanana.com. Hey, Pop-Tart listeners, have you been trying to record your own podcast, but you keep getting bogged down by technical problems? Luscious Logan can take the raw recordings of your show, edit and produce them to give them that rich, full body sound that you hear right now. If you have a deep need to express yourself and sound good in the process, reach Luscious Logan LusciousLogan13 at gmail.com. That's LusciousLogan13 at gmail.com. If you want to have that luscious sound. And we're back. Hello. Callie, I'm so sorry that you were not able to sit in on our interview with Lydia Lunch because it was legendary she is amazing she is a legit legend i know i'm excited for you to hear it i know i want to hear all the weirdo weird shit she said so now is the time in the program where i ask you because i've got to know and i want to know and i need to know what you're watching well you know i've been at the parents house so mainly me and my sister have just been binge watching svu and golden girls reruns it's like nice marathons on both and we just keep going back and forth from the intensity of SVU to the hilarity that is Golden Girls. And that has been spectacular. But I did actually see a couple things. I wanted to talk about the little Nas X Montero. Have you heard it? Amazing. Yes. And the new video gave me a lady boner. Oh, the one of the, uh, with them in in the playing football? Yes. (laughs) It's like every... Track had a video, but some were just animation. Mm-hmm. So I got really excited and thought we were going to get like a whole Beyonce. Yeah. But I am obsessed with his promotion package, the whole way he rolled this out. The Montero did you, show? Did you see that he had, so he had the uh, the pregnancy photos. Uh-huh. Because he's birthing, the, this is ba- the album's his baby. Then he had a baby shower for himself, and all the people that had guested on the track sent him gifts. And then <laughs> he did a baby registry. So every track, for each track, you can um, donate to a different charity. And so that- there, there's, like, one called Bros, Bros and Convo, and that's for Black, Gay, Bisexual, and Queer Men. And that was for the track, That's What I Want. And then there were some, one for the song Void was called for Cade Foundation, which is a nonprofit that supports family with infertility um, and helps them get grants to help uh, learn different ways to become parents. Then um, he worked with Miley. And so then he used Miley Cyrus's charity, um, what is it, Happy Hippie, or I think is what it's called. Um, And it's just like, genius so he's made about over ten thousand dollars for all these different charities just by having a fake baby registry for each song that's so awesome that's using his powers for good exactly and then he had a fake baby birthing video where he birthed the album out which was hilarious i watched that i loved it all but i will say this i was really excited to hear the um the track that he had with um What's that keyboard man? Uh, why can't I remember his name right now? I had it in mind. Oh, Elton John. So he had a track <laughs> with Elton John. I guess Elton John is coming out with a new album that has a lot of like rap and hip hop artists on it. Weird. Weird. And I was excited to see what this was going to sound like. But literally, it's just Elton John at the end of it, like twinkling on the key, the piano for like a minute. He doesn't say anything? No, how are you going to have Elton John on a track, not have vocals, and not have, like, a big piano interlude in the middle? All right. 
I was very disappointed. It was a fine song, but I really wanted, I mean, if you're going to have, if you're going to say featuring Elton John, I just don't want a little piano riff at the end. It's like Elton showed up and was like, eh, this is what you're going to get. I kind of think I had read an article that Little Nas had forgotten the advice that Elton John gave him because he had talked to so many people while he was making the album. And I was like, maybe Owen was like, I can tell you're not listening to me. Respect your elders. You're only getting a little, a little twinkle now. <laughs> but I haven't listened to the whole album. But part of it is really slow, and I guess the first part's really fast. So I'm going to have to give it a, a good playthrough. But I was not impressed with the album track. Mm-mm-mm-mm. And then, let's see what else I've been watching. Oh, um... I wanted to talk about Beyonce, uh, um, Kim Kardashian at the Met Gala. <laughs> With her like completely covered head to toe in black. Look. I absolutely loved it. I think it's the best thing she's ever worn. I saw um, the designer was like, well, this is about American fashion and American, um, you know, what, what America and what is more iconic than Kim Kardashian's silhouette. You don't even have to show her face. You don't have to put branding, but everybody knows who she is. And then Kim Kardashian said, what's more American fashion than a T-shirt that covers your whole body from head to toe? (laughs) But I absolutely loved it. And I also love the memes. And she knew what she was going to get into. I think she was a genius for that. And I love Lil Nas X's three Lukes at the Met Ball also. I absolutely, I loved it when they like ripped the metal suit off of him in like a flash. It was so good. Um, Another thing was I watched that movie, The Women, for the divorce article. Mm-hmm. And I remembered loving it. You know, that's the one from like, what is 1930 something. And it's all women cast. There's no men in the entire movie. Mm-hmm. And I was feeling it until the end when she gets back with the dude that cheated on her. Womp womp. Right. It did not make the cut. And I was watching with my dad and I was like, you could tell this was uh, written by a man. Because <laughs> this was going to be a movie about all women. You know, and, like, they go to that divorce ranch and shit. She wouldn't have got back with him at the end if this was written by a woman. (laughs) So that really bummed me out. Because I was like, oh, yeah, this is going to be great for the article. It was not. And then I also, let's discuss the Emmys. Sure. Um, I like that they tried to, to be diverse, but that yet it was all still white people that won. Except for Michaela Cole. I was about to say, except for Michaela Cole, long overdue, and she should have swept that. Yeah. She should have swept everything that they were nominated for. I have not seen The Crown. I'm sure The Crown is fine. I'm sure it's a great show. But is it anywhere near as good as I May Destroy You? Have you seen The Crown? I have not seen The Crown, but I was obsessed with I May Destroy You. (laughs) Yeah, it just, I mean, does not compute to me. I'm sure it's fine. But there's no way it's as... Interesting, as new, as real, and as, as important as I May Destroy You was. Mm-hmm. So I was mad about that. I also will say that I was glad that Jean Smart won for Hacks because I love that show and I love Jean Smart. But she knew that she was going to win. Like, I mean, I feel like she should have known that she was going to win. Like, she should have had a better speech. Her speech was kind of all over the place and rambling and not inspiring. I feel like she should have really, like, seized that moment. Oh, who is it that is on in uh, White Lotus? Oh, yeah. Jennifer Coolidge. <laughs> Jennifer Coolidge came, correct? Yes. Giving her best <laughs> Jennifer Coolidge. <laughs> She's a treasure. I love her. I love her so much. So that basically is what I've been watching around my binge watching of SVU and Golden Girls, which Golden Girls still 110% holds up in all the comedy. It really, really does. It's, it's never been more relevant as far as I'm concerned. And what have you been watching? Thank you so much for asking. Well, the first thing that I watched was on your recommendation. I started watching Only Murders in the Building mm-hmm. on Hulu. And I like it. It's it's fun and it's relaxing and it's cute. And, um, you know, it makes me sort of fantasize about what it would be like if Steve Martin and Martin Short lived in my building and if we listened and if to like podcasting became obsessed with murder together. But when I was thinking about it, I was like, probably in real life, I'm closer in age to Steve Martin than I am to Selena Gomez. I was like, I love that you're the Selena Gomez in this, but yes, we would be the Steve Martin and the, um, the Martin short. 
but I, I am loving those it. Those two are together. I think it's an amazing show. Yeah, I like it. And um, then this other movie that I loved that was also on Hulu um, is a 2020 movie that came out that like nobody saw because it came out in June of 2020 um, called Shirley. And this is one of these movies where you can just tell that there was just women making this movie on every level by women, for women, about women. So Shirley is a fictional film about one of my favorite real life authors of all time, Shirley Jackson. Oh. And so it's a biographical drama that was directed by Josephine Decker from a screenplay by Sarah Gubbins. And it was based on a novel by Susan Scharf Merrill. And basically the idea is that she created these fix, this fictional couple who like move in with Shirley Jackson and her husband during the time when she's writing her novel hangs a man. So like 1951. Um, and so it just sort of gives you this voyeuristic feeling like what, what would it be like if you like for a short time moved in with your favorite writer while she was writing one of her more famous novels? That sounds awesome. But um, there's, you know, like Shirley Jackson was very witchy and had definite bouts of mental illness. And there's a lot of sort of like who's afraid of Virginia Woolf overtones in it because Shirley. I didn't know she was witchy in what sense, like just a full ass witch. Like she was like, I am a full ass witch. You know, some people are like, oh, she's weird. She's a witch. And some people are like, I'm a full ass witch. No, she was like a, like, I'm going to put these nettles under your bed for your pregnancy, witch. I love it. Yeah. um, So I really recommend it. I, I found it really satisfying on every level. Like you can just tell like when women are making movies because then you don't have situations like with the women where it's like you have something and then it just falls apart because women would never do that. Um, And Elizabeth Moss stars in this film as Shirley Jackson and does a hell of a job. Well, she always serves. Yeah. She really, she really, uh, you know, delivered a, a performance that should have gotten more attention, but I think it didn't because it was like at, like the darkest part of lockdown. Oh, I was wondering why I wouldn't have heard of this. And this was on Hulu? Yeah, it's on Hulu. You can watch it right now. It's called Shirley. And um, and then another movie that I <laughs> love, love, loved was this horror movie that's on HBO Max called Malignant. I'm not sure if it's still on HBO Max now because you know how they're doing that thing where for like a a week or two, they put a new movie on and then like you have, then you have to see it in the theater. Oh, something damn. like that. Cause I don't have any, I don't have HBO right now at my parents' house. So I may miss the min- malignant. Cause you told me it was up my alley, right? Oh my God. I, it, it was almost too gory for me. Ah, I want to see it. <laughs> <laughs> but it was definitely, you know, it's woman centric horror, which I love. It was directed by James Wan who, um, is responsible for the whole conjuring franchise, which I love. And so, um, I was definitely here for it and, um, I'm not going to give anything away, but like, basically it stars this woman who starts having visions of people being murdered. And then like, she, she slowly starts to realize that these sort of they're it's like, she's in like a dream, but, and she wakes up, in her house and feels like she had a dream, but then that murder really happened. And she's like, why did that happen? And then the reason that she's having these dreams, like when they reveal it, I literally just started screaming at my television, like screaming. I couldn't handle it. It was like one of the more horrifying things I've ever experienced narratively in my life. And I will never forget it. Um, so yeah, Malignant, HBO Max, loved it. Um, and the last thing that I'm watching is the Majestic Pop-Tarts Patreon page. We really, really need all of our listeners' help to keep Bust alive. And hopefully those of you within the sound of my voice will be excited by the goodies that we've hooked up for Pop-Tarts listeners at patreon.com slash Pop-Tarts podcast. 
Callie and I, with help from Team Bust, have been typing up show notes exclusively for Patreon donors that include links to what everyone has been watching for all 117 episodes. We've got totally ad-free episodes available. There's exclusive content on there, including an amazing episode we taped with Big Frida, who just dropped an album, by the way, and so much more. Big Diva Energy, girl. Where the fuck, God, I'm missing so many things because I'm not really on the trolling on my internet, like with my due diligence. Now I Get have to on work. it. Yeah. And so much more. Please check it out at patreon.com slash Podcast. At this point in the show, I would like to give a big thank you to our luscious producer and sound engineer, Logan Del Fuego. Muy caliente, Logan. And of course, our girl gang at Bust Magazine. You can find me on Twitter at Emily Rems and on Instagram at Rems Emily because somebody took Emily Rems, which is rude. rude. You cannot, however, find Callie on the socials, so don't even try. No, I keep creeping in the, in the darkness. <laughs> you can email us both, though. I'm at emilyrems at bust.com. Callie W at bust.com. And you can learn more about this show at bust.com slash Pop-Tarts. And finally, please rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts. It really helps us get the word out, and we super-duper appreciate it. Until next time. I canceled culture long before it got back to me. I don't feel canceled. I canceled the need for popularity. I don't give a shit about you liking or not liking. Again, let me go back to the origins. What are you going to cancel? What is there to fucking cancel? I already did it all. How are you going to cancel me? Come on, bring it on. Cancel me? I laugh in the face of it. I canceled you. I canceled them. I don't fucking give a shit. I'm not here for a popularity contest.